Welcome to History Talk, produced by Origins, a project of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the Department of History at The Ohio State University. The American philosopher John Dewey once wrote, History which is not brought down close to the actual scene of events leaves a gap. Our goal with Origins and History Talk is to fill that gap and help make for more engaged citizens. We hope you enjoy what you find. I'm Leticia Wiggins, one of your co-hosts, and welcome to this week's History Talk. Today we're discussing Syria, which has been engulfed in a civil war since 2011. The conflict has killed more than 100,000 people and created more than 2 million refugees. Origins has run two articles on Syria. Both can be found at origins.osu.edu. And this is Patrick Payandi, your other co-host. And in this week's History Talk, we're joined by two guests, both specialists on the Middle East. First, we have Aisha Baltagio-Lubrammer, a history doctoral candidate who focuses on Sunni-Shia conflicts in the Middle East and author most recently of the Origins article, Alawites and the Fate of Syria, which can be found on the origins.osu.edu website. Thanks for joining us, Aisha. Hi, thanks for having me. We're lucky to have not one, but two Patricks on the show today. Our second guest is Patrick Scharf. He's also a history doctoral candidate, and he focuses on the place of Islam in the early 19th century. Say hello, Patrick. Thank you very much. So jumping right into the questions today, um, we know every nation is made up of a number of ethnic groups and religious sects. So what are the key groups we need to know about to understand the political landscape of Syria? Um, As you said, actually, Syria is composed of multi-ethnic, multi-religious, and multi-lingual groups. So in order to understand what is going on in Syria now, we have to know what these main groups are. And to summarize, the the Kurds living in the northern parts and Alawites can be understood as a semi-Shiite groups living in the north uh, western part of the country, in the mountainous parts of parts of the country, and Sunnis who compromise the majority, who usually live in urban places, and Druzes, uh, another sub-Islamic group, and Christians who are also mainly urban. Um, population. Yeah, and I would say the key thing to keep in mind is that while the Sunnis are a majority, as she mentioned, it's only sort of a narrow majority. Something like 60% is Sunni and Arab. So there, obviously there are ethno, ethnic groups and religious groups, ethno-religious groups. Mm-hmm. Um, the Kurds are Sunni, but as, you know, at being ethnically different, they have a sort of different political identity. So, but Sunni and Arab together, uh, that ethno-religious group would constitute about 60% of the population. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about the Assad family, their relationship to the Alawites as part of the Alawite group, Mm -hmm. um, and Sunni Muslims in Syria and Mm -hmm. their roles in the current conflict and maybe historically in Syria. Mm -hmm. Uh, The current president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, actually is a son of Hafez al-Assad who came to power in Syria in 1970 as the first president. And he is he was um, coming from a relatively well-off family, Alawite family, who lived in that mountainous northwestern part of Syria. And he joined the military because it was one of the only uh, one of the few outlets for Alawites to uh, make careers. And he rose to the ranks of high military office, officials, <clears throat> and then through several coups he basically declared himself as the president of Syria in 1971. And as I said, um, the family itself is coming from an Alawite um, background. Obviously, he's a member of the Ba'ath Party. Mm-hmm. The Ba'ath Party actually first came to power in a series of coups in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. As an Arab nationalist movement, 
unbiased, at least theoretically, with regard to ethno-religious differences. But there was a tendency in this Bath- Bathist politics for sort of very conspiratorial clique politics to arise. And this happened in both Iraq and in Syria. And in both cases, there was a sort of a, a very narrow ethno-religious clique that ended up capturing the heights of power. And in Iraq, that was obviously that of Saddam Hussein, Sunni Arabs, especially from the city of Tikrit. In Syria, in a sense, you have a similar phenomenon that there's a, a, a narrow ethno-religious clique that, that captures the uh, the heights of power. The Alawites, um, it doesn't mean that the regime is exclusively Alawite, but there's this tendency for this sort of specific ethno-religious group to be overrepresented. Mm-hmm. And in my article, I briefly mentioned that why Alawites particularly wanted to be a part of the Syrian army. And in order to understand it, we need to look at the French mandate regime that governed Syria for the first half of the 20th century. And... Um, the French mandate regime established a close relationship with the minority religious and ethnic um, minorities in Syria um, to kind of keep the majority Sunnis under control. So this mutual relationship between the mandate, French mandate regime and the minorities, including the Alawites in this case, worked for their benefit because they were enrolled into the military ranks very quickly and um, relatively higher numbers compared to Sunni majority. And the reason that I also mentioned in my article is that uh, being a part of that foreign mandate regime as a member of the military was kind of a negative feature for the Sunni majority who were fighting for their own independence as Arab nationalists. So they did not want to be a part of the French army even though it was basically an army serving in Syria. But Alawites, who had that relationship with the French regime, did not see anything wrong with that, so they became a part of the French Mandate Army. Yeah, it was very much a divide-and-rule strategy. In fact, the French had originally intended not to set up a single Syria, but a balkanized Syria, with all these different ethnic groups having their own states and that sort of thing. Uh, and this was largely out of fear of Sunni Arab nationalism. The French, being colonial masters of Algeria, had a lot of fear from Sunni Arab nationalism. So that sort of establishes the dynamic. And, of course, these colonial dynamics then take on their own lives in Syria and, and other Middle Eastern countries. Mm-hmm. And in some of the most recent talks about getting negotiations started, Syrian women have stepped forward to demand a place at the table. And is this unique in the Arab Spring? Have women played a prominent role across the region's events? Uh, well, I would be more familiar with some of the other Arab Spring countries like sure. Egypt. In Egypt, I think it really has been remarkable the way that women have stepped forward and become of extraordinary importance as activists, um, symbolically significant. There are all sorts of examples that you could cite. For me, in a sense, uh, Syria, I don't know if Syria has quite so many symbolic examples as Egypt, for example, because the situation in Syria is so militarized. And uh, so so much dominated by armed groups, whether it's the Syrian government or Islamist militant groups in Syria, that uh, the role for women activists, I think, is narrower than in a place like Egypt, where they've been of extraordinary significance. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with Patrick. Um, I can only add that in Syrian situation, yes, we don't see that many women in the front rows. 
But uh, Asma al-Assad, who is wife of Bashar al-Assad, was actually on TVs and newspapers for a while. So it was, I think, a PR mm-hmm. in the Assad side of the story that uh, Assad's uh, wife, Asma al-Assad, was distributing food and being involved in charity activities and gain people's sympathy, empathy for the Assad regime. So she was involved in that moment. Yeah, these wives of the leaders play a really important role, both in the regime itself and as oftentimes a very hated figure among the opposition. This was true in Tunisia. This is true in Egypt. Uh, these wives attracted a lot of negative attention on the part of the opposition. They were Within the regime, they were associated with this sort of state feminism idea where the government is promoting an official form of feminism. Aisha will be very familiar with this from Turkey, uh, which state feminism also has a long history there. So there's this sort of sense of these wives of dictators as being patrons of women and protectors of the status of women from the perspective of the Arab Spring uh, uprisings, this was sort of a, a shell game, something that is not really a real form of feminism, not a genuine form of activism, but this debate over state feminism and official forms of feminism promoted by the state is one that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that form of state feminism has been a tool that has kind of propped up authoritarian regimes in the region, or has it mm-hmm. done some substantial things to promote um, the rights of women across the region? Um, as long as you stay in the limits that were determined by the state, of course, the women gain a lot of rights and they were given um, access to education or some positions that they were in in the past. But once they started to question those limits uh, determined by the state, of course, there was a clash between feminists and the state in that manner. And when did this state feminism, as they term it, develop? And is it is it has it changed in definition too? Um, if we talk about Turkey, I will say 1920s, 30s, with the establishment uh-huh. of the Republic of Turkey under the um, rule of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk and then his regime. That seems early. I mean, which is neat. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's pretty early. And I, I think to answer Patrick's question more directly, I think it's it's done both very much. I mean, it has advanced rights for women, but it's also propped up the regime. And that is sort of the contradiction that a lot of feminists work with in the Middle East. Like, mm-hmm. To what degree do we want to accept these discourses as useful or to what degree do we want to reject them as propping up old authoritarianisms? Mm-hmm. And in the Syrian example, when we were talking about Asma al-Assad, um, her religious background also played a role, at least the state, the regime wanted her background play a role. Um, she's coming from a Sunni family. So she was on those... TV news and pictures and public broadcasting broadcasting because Assad regime was also trying to show that uh, the, the, the regime's leader's own leader's wife is coming from a Sunni background and the Assad regime is not as hateful as towards Sunnis as the, the, the Sunni opposition movement tries to depict in that sense. There has been a lot of debate about whether or not the United States should have intervened more directly in the Syrian conflict. In your opinion, would it have been a good idea for the U.S. or Europe to take a more active role? Or did potential dangers outweigh any potential positives? I think we need to start with the definition of direct involvement. Like, mm-hmm. What do we mean by that? If we mean um, soldiers on food, we Ground all know forces. that. Yes, I think we all know that it did not work. In previous examples, but personally, I believe that there should some measurements should be taken 
considering what is going on in Syria right now and how many civilians are being killed by both sides, but mainly by the Assad regime? From my perspective, again, of course, it depends on what kind of intervention would have been taken. But in a sense, regardless of what intervention had been undertaken, I don't think we can really say that we would know what would have occurred. I think anyone who, who claims to know that some this or that would have occurred is not not being straightforward. I don't think that that the results of U.S. intervention would have been straightforwardly predictable. Uh, but there are different sides to this debate. You had an interesting phenomenon with some Sunni commentators around the Arab world who normally would have been very skeptical of U.S. power. They were actually calling for U.S. intervention, specifically Yusuf al-Qaradawi was one of the most interesting examples of this. He's sort of a global intellectual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood living in Qatar, but he's active all over the region, especially in Egypt. He openly called for U.S. intervention back at the, maybe the beginning of 2012. So you had this interesting paradox of... Different it certainly takes place in Turkey, too. You see that pro-American interventionists among uh, religiously conservative groups who were pretty much against every other um, U.S. invasions yeah. in Afghanistan or, or in Iraq or even in Libya. But now they are seeking for American intervention in the, in the Syrian case. It, it really is a fascinating it turnabout is. to see that, that sort of thing. It's sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of attitude. Um, there would have been a couple different kinds of intervention that could have been undertaken. Obviously, ground forces were a possibility, but I think less likely than an airstrike. From the perspective of the Syrian opposition, an airstrike would have given them a lot of help because what we have seen since the beginning of 2013 is a radicalization of the Syrian opposition movement, yes. a move toward much more al-Qaeda-style uh, military groups. And this has definitely been worrying. And some people have said that the lack of U.S. intervention has helped bring this about. I don't know if we can say that for certain, but it's it's been a perspective that's out there. Yes. I also argue something similar in my article that this transformation that we see in Syrian conflict from uh, some type of supra-ethnic, supra-religious and linguistic opposition movement against the regime into a sectarian, other sectarian conflict between Sunnis and Shiites made it even more difficult to solve or even evaluate what's going on in Syria right now. Because right now we also have to consider international factors, international players. The Assad regime, in his side, we see how Russia and how Iran and how Shiite Lebanon and Hezbollah are actually financially, politically and morally um, supporting the regime since it became another sectarian war in the region. Something sort of implicit in what we've been saying, which is that, unfortunately, it, uh, the war in Syria seems to have devolved into a sectarian proxy war with a lot of these different countries involved, funding different groups, and uh, makes it, of course, even harder to solve. Yes. You bring up these great points of how, you know, the actuality and kind of what we see on a, on a daily basis in the news. And what is one thing, I suppose, that either the news media or policymakers need to keep in mind as they continue to address Syria? I would say that we need to know how this conflict began and how it revolved into a sectarian war. Because there is a big difference between seeing this and other sectarian war that started as a sectarian war and evaluating the situation by its own dynamics. And that difference will, will be even more important in the future since we are talking about international um, involvement 
by other international actors. Yeah, I, I agree that looking at the roots of the conflict and seeing it not as something that was inherently sectarian and had to be sectarian from the beginning, but rather something that became more and more sectarian over time, partly because of the intervention of other powers, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Iran, these countries have, have considerably worsened the sectarian tensions. Well, thanks again to Patrick Scharf and Aisha Baltagiolu Brammer for joining us today. Both specialize on the Middle East and are doctoral students at Ohio State. So thanks again to both of you. Thank you. for Thanks, guys. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our website manager and technical advisor is Mitchell Shelton. Our audio editors and co-hosts are Patrick Patiani and Leticia Wiggins. Find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu. Thank you for listening.